As I shared in the last episode, I did not have plans on doing a season focused on sitting and suffering, but God is definitely up to something. In addition to the growing collection of guests that are lined up, the topic of suffering has been working in my life beyond just the recordings. For example, it was not by my design that this season would fall during the season of Lent, which focuses heavily on the suffering that Christ endured. In addition to that, I host a community Bible study, And because of a question prompted by one of my neighbors when he came into Bible study a few weeks ago, we have been sitting in this topic of suffering as well. I really believe that God is inviting us into something deeper here. And it's into a topic that we don't like to talk about, partly because suffering often means that we don't get the desires of our heart. That phrase is in reference to Psalm 37 verse 4. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Last week's story, this week's story, and many of the coming stories are stories of people who are trying to take delight in the Lord, and yet they didn't get the desires of their heart. So what do we do with this verse? Well, today's guest, Trisha, has one answer for us. And her story comes from a hard season where she and her husband were excited to learn that they were pregnant with their second child and first daughter until they got devastating news that changed everything. But in the midst, As Trisha realized that her desires were crumbling, she discovered that God actually did have abundantly more than she could ask for or imagine. You're listening to episode 114 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and good, and I just thank you for your presence in this space right now that you brought us together, that you're inviting us into conversation, but we want to acknowledge that we don't know where you might take the conversation. So we want to release it to you. We want to just invite you to guide our words and our thoughts. And ultimately, we just pray that whatever you're doing here would just be a clear expression to us and to anyone who hears this, that you are God and you are good. You are present and you are active and you are doing something really amazing. So we thank you for the privilege of being a part of that. I pray in his holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, Trisha, I'm excited to have a conversation with you. We connected through Podmatch. And one of the interesting things for this conversation is... I've actually matched with you multiple times, but when I've matched, it happened when I was in the heaviest part of my last season. And I'm like, I just don't have the bandwidth to have any more guests. And so anytime I would have a guest pop up, I would just say, maybe later, maybe later, but you kept popping up. (laughs) And I remember every time you did, I had this feeling that if not now, that we're supposed to have a conversation. And so when I started into this season, which was not one that I planned at all, yours was one of the first names to pop up in the matches. And I'm like, and here it is. This is the moment. So I believe that we're supposed to have this conversation. But before we jump in, what would you like listeners to know about you before we start having a conversation? Well, I think that, you know, the reason I got into podcasting was because I wrote a book and I felt this strong calling from God to lead me to write a book. And the more I put it off and said, no, I felt like I kept getting more and more signs. Mm. And I actually write about this in the book in the intro, because it just wasn't an accident. This is what I was supposed to do. And I never in my life thought I would write a book. 
And I never thought I would be doing public speaking and on so many podcasts. But I think that God puts us in different circumstances in our lives to learn and to grow. And once you've been through the valley and some really hard times, as long as you're leaning on God to guide you through those times, I think there's a lot to be said about sharing that experience with other people. Because I know for me, when I was going through this really hard time in my life that the book was based about, I needed other people to hear from, to guide me, to give spiritual guidance, and essentially to tell me it's going to be okay. And in that moment, and like my weakest, darkest days, I couldn't do that for myself. And I would pray and pray and pray, but I still needed other human beings to connect with. And so now that I'm kind of on the other side of my circumstances that this book is based upon, I feel like I'm in a better position to help others and to be a light to help someone that's going through a hard time. Yeah, I really appreciate that, especially because I feel like that's a big piece of why God pushed me into this season focused on sitting and suffering. Because suffering can be a very lonely place. And when we can't seem to get out of it, when it doesn't seem like God is taking it away, it can be hard to know what in the world to do. And when we hear the stories of others who have been in that place, and we hear how they navigated it and what God's taught them, something beautiful can happen. And so I'm excited to hear your story because I don't know very much about it. So Trisha, tell me a story. Sure. So I'll back up a little bit. I went to Baylor University for college and majored in marketing communications. And that's where I met my husband. We started dating in college. You know, in our 20s, we got married after college. We both started careers. I was working as the director of admissions at a large Catholic high school in Dallas. And I was also the head volleyball coach. I always had a really strong calling to coaching and to working with kids, athletes. And I think like most people, when you navigate through your 20s, you're just working really hard to build your career and figure out what it is that you want to do. And we were having a great time both working and learning a lot in our jobs. And then by our late 20s, we decided to have our first child, Cameron. And, you know, I was only 28 and none of my friends had had children yet. Mm -hmm. And so it was an easy, healthy pregnancy. And that's just kind of how I assumed life was supposed to go. I was naive to any kind of issues during pregnancy or miscarriages or any of the things I would then learn about in my 30s as more friends were having children. A few years later, our son Cameron was about three, and he started asking us for a lady baby, <laughs> which meant he wanted a little sister. I guess as daycare, he had seen that some of his little buddies were getting babies, and that seemed like something he wanted. We weren't quite ready to have the discussion of how that happened. So we just said, pray about it and we'll see what happens. And so that really brought up my husband and I discussing the idea of a second child. We both grew up with younger siblings. And so we knew that was a part of something we wanted. A few months later, I was pregnant. It was going great. And in the middle of July, the doctor mentioned we could do a blood test on me to find out the gender of our child. And I was so on board for that. I really wanted to know if it was a girl and start painting the room and decorating and, you know, all the things that you buy when you have a girl. So we didn't think much of it after that. And 10 days later, we got the call that we were having a girl. But then she also said that she had some troubling news that the baby tested positive for trisomy 18. So we're more familiar in society with Down syndrome. And that actually is called trisomy 21. And trisomy 18 is typically just a more severe version of Down syndrome. And then on top of that, we found out that our daughter only had a two-chamber heart. Mm -hmm. 
and so you know can't build chambers in the womb and with those things stacked against her the specialist that we went to recommended an abortion and it was really shocking to me to hear that because again i was so naive and i didn't know anything could go wrong with pregnancy and then i was also shocked and stunned that someone would recommend an abortion and i didn't understand why mm-hmm. and you know my husband and i we took that whole week off just to cry and pray and you know we're just lost we knew that was not what we would do and it was interesting because there was some pushback from that like that specialist thought i was crazy for continuing the pregnancy and thought we should just move on and have a healthy child because all of this happened in mid july my volleyball season in the fall was starting august 1st and my team was coming off back to back state championships the three peat is like you know the mecca goal of athletics mm. and it's really really hard to accomplish and really key players had graduated over the last two years and so this was going to be a hard year and i knew that carrying this news i had to tell them what was going on because there was a very high chance that i would have the baby during the season and it would end in a stillbirth because of her condition it was really neat how god used that time and that volleyball season for me because number 1 it acted as a distraction i had something else to focus on i had something else to look forward to at the end of the day and those teenage girls as crazy and sometimes selfish as teenagers can be rallied around me and vowed to make practice fun enjoyable there was never a complaint about anything and if you ever work with teenagers that's really hard to get through even an hour without them complaining mm-hmm. about something and so we went on to win that state championship and they dedicated it to my daughter Annabelle i was still pregnant by the end of the season and going into the third trimester which by itself was a miracle and then almost 2 months later a month and a half later she was born and she was the first live trisomy 18 birth at the hospital that we were delivering at for any of these doctors and nurses that worked there and so we kind of became a bit of a spectacle because this was a miracle it was something that they had not seen or experienced before and i thought it was really neat how doctors and nurses were being completely stunned by what they thought they knew and what they thought was supposed to happen and what they were taught in medical school or nursing school about babies with this condition and what they were learning in this moment we had to do a c-section to have the best chance of meeting her alive and she wasn't breathing in the first 4 minutes and then finally we all heard this little you know lion cub cry and we knew there was a chance and so they got her to my chest and everybody's you know going to work to make sure that we get time with her but at that point the preparation was still expectation of moments like minutes an hour of time with her and then that would be it and Annabelle had other plans and i just remember the waiting room it was like the whole hospital was filled with people praying for us and praying for her and back at the high school everybody was in the chapel praying for her and i know now those prayers gave us minutes they gave us hours they gave us time and every single shift change with the nurses they would cry and they would say goodbye like we're never going to see her again she's so wonderful we can't believe this happened and then they would come back the next day and she was still alive and they were like what in the world you know you're not supposed to breathe with a two chamber heart you're just not supposed to survive she lived 6 days and made it into the wee hours of that 7th day and passed away at home but it was really neat to watch and to see how god changed hearts and minds for abortion for children with disabilities 
how he changed the minds and hearts of some of the doctors and nurses we encountered and what they thought they knew about trisomy 18. And I know it's very tragic and sad. I mean, it was really hard to get through, but I can also see the beauty and the joy and the love that was had during that time in that pregnancy. And my son Cameron, who, you know, by this time was almost four years old, had such a beautiful understanding of eternal life. And, you know, God had to take her back to heal her. It was hard for him too, but I felt like when the Bible talks about the faith of a child, we were witnessing it in our own son and the way that he processed the loss. And so essentially my job and my life just got so changed because of the focus of our child and what we went through. And so I started writing in 2019. I wrote the book all of 2020. I kind of had these moments where I was just brought into the right hands and into the right people at the right time. And I ended up leaving my job last year so that I could pursue speaking Mm. and more writing and sharing our story because I know that it's important and it's something that I have to share. So here I am. Now it's been a little over seven years and I am on that other side where I feel like I'm more of a help to someone else than needing help for my own grief and loss. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's such a heavy story on many levels, but I think what really strikes me, the topic of abortion has always been a tricky one. And what's interesting in this is there's this element of suffering where for the specialist, I imagine in their mind, what they were actually trying to do was they perceived future suffering and they wanted to eliminate that future suffering. The suffering of you losing the child without having control of when and how and where, or the suffering of if that child is born, what their life would look like. And this is the conversation that comes up when it comes to diagnosed disabilities in the womb and somebody projecting their life is going to be filled with suffering. We have this default of wanting to avoid suffering. You made a decision that was almost inviting or even guaranteeing suffering Mm -hmm. because of your personal desires, because of your faith, because of a a number of things. So uh, tell me more about that, that decision to, instead of avoiding or removing suffering, to willingly step into that. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? Well, we were stepping into a lot of unknowns. Every single day, I would wake up wondering, is she still alive? Mm -hmm. Because you're basically told it was almost impossible to make it full term with her condition. And it did invite in a lot of anxiety and fear But at the same time, the way I also viewed it was if I have to make the decision or if I'm being told to make the decision to end her life now, there's so many what ifs. Like I'm taking away the opportunity to maybe get to see her alive or to get to spend time with her or seeing her little tiny body intact, even if it was a stillbirth. And I could not bear the thought of that. The other part about it is, you know, faith was a huge part of it, but I've been a coach my whole life. I mean, I've been coaching since I was a teenager. I somehow landed a job as a middle school coach when I was 19 and somehow was the head varsity coach of a high school when I was 20. And I've coached really bad teams and really good teams. But the theme in coaching is work your hardest and try your best. And you're always going to show up for the fight. Mm -hmm. And if you try your hardest, then whether you win or lose, you can walk away feeling like you did everything you could, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And we tried our best, but they won this time. Or we did our best and we won this time. 
there was something striking about God saying, it's time for you to live out what you've been saying to others in a new way. And so I didn't feel like I could be a hypocrite and tell athletes, I need you to show up to battle and work your hardest, even though this is the number one team ranked in the state and we'll probably lose. I need you to show up. And I knew the odds were stacked against us. I knew that this was not something that would be easy or that we would get to meet her alive. But I got to show up for the fight and I have to do everything I can to protect her and keep her safe. And I also had this, I guess, foresight, you could say, in that I teach female athletes. And although they're 15 to 18 years old now, they will have children likely and be married someday. And they will have friends that are married and that get pregnant or they're not married and get pregnant. And they will in their circles in the next 10 to 15 years, be faced with decisions similar to mine, or they'll face a friend that's having a similar decision. And how would I want to be a role model for those girls? And that struck me as well, like what my job and what my calling was with my platform as a female coach. And so there was a lot of things that I think also made me strong in my weakest moment because I thought that I was needing to be an example for others. And I think sometimes when you see it that way, it does make you stronger. You feel like you can go through some suffering or pain because you hope and pray that others can see your example and then hopefully make decisions similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned unknowns. And the other really unique thing about your story is... In some situations that are hard, it may be hard, but we at least know where we're supposed to go or what we're not supposed to do. In your story, you had multiple voices that were at times saying contrasting things. You were having the specialist saying, you would be crazy to not get an abortion. This isn't going to play out well at all. You have to get an abortion. And you were having other people were saying, you absolutely cannot get an abortion. Like You can't do that. So you have these voices, sometimes expert voices, sometimes voices you trusted saying such different things. And meanwhile, you're the one who has to make a decision. Like you and your husband have to make a decision. And that's such a difficult space when we have to step into something not knowing for sure what is the best decision or the right decision or the clear path. Sometimes we have to make a decision and then step and trust that God can work in that. What did you learn about God in the midst of that kind of decision making? Oh, so many things. One of those things was that we have permission to be angry and upset and to question what's going on and why. And I had never been through anything like this before, right? Where I was really being called to continue her life, but at the same time, I felt like I was kind of in a lose-lose situation, like this isn't going to end well, this is going to be really tough, how am I going to navigate this situation? And we already had a little toddler at home, how are we going to explain it to him? And how are we going to get through this? And it was really cool how in some of my weakest moments, I was on a run, for example, in like late August, I was really mad. So this is like a month after finding out the diagnosis. And so that's when I think anger sets in after like the denial and things like that. And I just didn't get it. I didn't understand why I felt like, did I do something wrong to deserve this? This is terrible. How is this happening? And so I remember I was on this run and I just kept running and running. And my husband had warned me to bring water. It's Texas. It's August. It's like 100 degrees. It's four o'clock. I mean, I made all the wrong decisions, but I was mad. And I just left the house and started running. 
And so, of course, I got to a point where I'd run too far and the only way back was by turning around, but I was super thirsty and really fatigued and I needed water. I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. I just felt this like God's like, call Nicole. And Nicole was a girl that I'd coached maybe five years previous and she was in college. And so I thought, well, maybe she's home. A lot of college kids don't go back until Labor Day. We probably hadn't talked in a really long time. She was just a student at the school I worked at, you know, and graduated. And so when I called her, I said, hey, I know you live sort of close to where I'm at right now. I was wondering if I could run to your house and get some water. And I just remember that disappointment in her voice where she was like, I'm so sorry, I'm not home. I'm at my aunt's house babysitting. But like, if you want to, you can come here. It's like pretty close to my house. And I'm thinking, well, this is weird. Now I'm calling a girl that I haven't talked to in five years and I need water. And now she's telling me to come to her aunt's house. But I was like, I'm thirsty, like I've got to have water and I'm stuck and I'm stubborn. I don't want to ask my husband for help because he told me I should have brought water. And so she asked me what intersection I was at. And I told her exactly the stop sign I was standing at. And she just said, turn to your right. That's my aunt's house. (laughs) What in the world? And of course, of all things, like God places me in front of her house. It's this giant giant mansion, probably worth 10 or more million dollars with these huge iron gates. And within a few minutes, those iron gates open and here comes Nicole with this giant tumbler of water with ice, you know, like so luxurious. And I just remember I was just screaming at God in my head about how angry I was and how mad I was about my situation. And he brought me to water and I thought, okay, I get it. (laughs) Like, there's got to be a bigger plan. There's got to be a bigger purpose. I mean, I have pictures of the house in my speaking engagements. I talk about that because I feel like God can bring you into a place like that where it's a really obvious intervention and he's right there and he orchestrated the whole situation because there's millions of homes in Dallas and that's the one I landed in front of. But I can also tell you that within another few days or even hours, I was doubting again. I was scared again. I had fear again. I had anxiety again. And so you can't just pray anxiety away. You can't pray for fear to go away. It's a constant pursual, like constant pursual of asking God to speak to you, to help give you answers and peace and wisdom in your circumstance. And so I think that was the biggest lesson learned was I think I used to think, well, I think if you're a good Christian, you just pray for something to go away, your fear to go away or the situation to go away. And then God magically makes that happen. And then it's okay again. Hmm. But I was still going to walk through that story for months and months and months. And then even years for experiencing the loss and the grief. And that's been a process. It's been a process to have those feelings. And to be okay with processing it and sometimes being mad at God or processing the grief gradually and having your doubt. But the goal is to always come back and keep knocking and knocking and knocking and say, God, I need to see you. I need to understand why. And that's really what it's all about for us. Yeah, that's so important because I think you're right. It's ingrained in us that fear is wrong, anxiety is wrong. And if you're feeling these things, then you're not actually trusting God enough and that you just need to pray to God to take it away and he'll take it away. And then when it's still there, then we're like, well, am I not praying right? Does God not actually exist? And we get into this hard place. We'll cite verses like, I have not given you a spirit of fear. Mm -hmm. But even as that verse came to mind, 
what it makes me think of is what Jesus gave us was the helper, right? Mm. We were given the Holy Spirit, and that is not a spirit of fear. But we may still have fear within us. We may still have confusion within us. And so the invitation isn't the elimination of all those things. It's to trust God. It's to trust the Spirit's work within us that isn't based in fear so that when we fear, we know that we're not alone in that fear. We're not left to just that fear. We can still have fear, but know there is a greater power and to choose to hold to that. It's like the other verse that says, help me in my unbelief. It's this idea of the unbelief is there. It exists. So help me in the midst of that. It's interesting that it doesn't say, remove my unbelief. It's this idea of here is where I am, but I want to be with you. And so I'm coming as I am. And one thing I really resonated with in your story is you talked about how every morning you would wake up and be like, is she still alive? Mm -hmm. Because until the baby gets old enough and developed enough to start kicking and stuff, there's no way to really know. And I resonated because in 2011, my wife and I went to our nine and a half week appointment and there was no heartbeat. And we felt like God was inviting us to pray for the baby to live. And we're thinking about all the passages in scripture, people being raised from the dead. And we asked, do we have to do anything now? Because they were recommending we go ahead and schedule the surgery. They're like, well, we can schedule an appointment for two weeks to come back and see how things are. And Of course, we're hoping in two weeks we come back and the baby's alive. But in those two weeks, (laughs) we had no clue. Like there is no way to know for sure if our prayers were working. There is no way to know for sure because we couldn't hear the heart. We didn't have the equipment. And that, like you noted, is such a uniquely difficult space to be in Mm -hmm. when you have to keep moving forward. But there is absolutely no way to know what's happening if anything is happening. And so I imagine some of those may have been some of the heaviest moments, mornings you would wake up and not know. Whatever you're comfortable sharing, when you think about some of the darkest or lowest or most hopeless moments, how did you navigate that space? Or how did God navigate that space amidst you in spite of where you were? Well, I remember that every day I would wake up and it would just start off on a bad note because I didn't know. Lots of tears on the way to work. But I think that I kind of got this message to just take one day at a time. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, upon finding this out mid-July and then processing it, then my team started volleyball season August 1st. The state championship is mid-November, like right before Thanksgiving. It kind of became that thing, practice at the end of the day or a game at the end of the night, that I could live in a world of complete distraction. Mm -hmm. And I could get really zoned in to the game and to what was going on and to coaching and to interaction with my athletes and coaches. And I kind of just used that as my distraction. And I say this in the book, there was many times when I would go to see my doctor, my OB, who was very supportive. Mm -hmm. And she's like, your blood pressure's up a little bit. I'm like, I'm coaching. Like, yes, that makes sense. And she was like, have you worked on a birth plan? And I'm like, "Mm -mm, nope, I haven't done anything yet. I'm in volleyball season and I I can't, I'm not ready. I'm like mentally not ready to go to that space yet. And so by the time volleyball season was over and we were heading into Thanksgiving break, I felt like that was God's way of saying, okay, I'll let you put off major planning and thinking about what's going on until then. 
And then she was born on December 29th. And so I was able to go into that season of Thanksgiving. And really the Advent season was, I guess you could say, kind of made it worse, but kind of made it better. Because the whole entire story from Mary's perspective is getting pregnant and not understanding how that could be possible. And then having no idea how she would be able to get away with having a child unwed and obviously where they were going to have the child. But she just trusted that God had her back and that it was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And in no way can I compare myself to the mother of Jesus. But in a lot of ways, entering that season became therapeutic and it helped me understand how I as a mother should be handling the situation, you know, with optimism and with hope, despite what we were going through. I really think that I was lucky in that I got August, September, October, and half of November to have a little bit of that pressure alleviated because I had something else going on in my life. And of course, raising my son and having my husband. And then it was God's way of saying, okay, now it's time. Between Thanksgiving and Christmas, there's a lot of processing. There's a lot of decisions that you have to make. Mm -hmm. And I can't be in the OR cut open being like, hey, you know what? Actually, I changed my mind. I'd like you to put her on an oxygen tube. I had to make all of those decisions of care in different scenarios in advance. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting how I, in a way, put off a lot of the planning and a lot of the processing until that volleyball season was over. But if I didn't have that, if I didn't have those girls fighting every day for her and bringing that positive energy and spirit and having these really fun practices and just, you know, that time, it would have been a long, long pregnancy. I mean, it would have been a really, really hard journey. So it still was. I just think that it was made better because of my other circumstances in my life. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is you talked about in this story a miracle happening, right? And if somebody just heard the start of your story and heard that it was a miracle story, they would assume that the baby was not just born, but lived and here she is today. And people can have a hard time with the reality that your miracle story also included her only making it to the very start of the seventh day. But what you noted is part of the miracle was that that wasn't even supposed to happen. She wasn't supposed to survive up to birth. She wasn't supposed to live beyond a few minutes. Okay, beyond an hour. Okay, beyond a day. And the fact that she lived as long as she had was a miracle. But the other thing that you noted is that it was a miracle for those who were watching who had a certain understanding of how the world worked, how disability in the womb worked, how all these things should be navigated. And suddenly... Here's something different. Mm -hmm. And now they're having to step back and say, like you noted, okay, well, how do I now engage disability and how do I understand what's possible? And so there is an internal miracle, which maybe you heard some conversations around, but a lot of it you may never know. You may never know what miracle God did because you were willing to trust him in this suffering, in this space, and others were watching it. I've had that message from God a lot, like exactly what you just said. You will have no idea. It's kind of like that visualization of a rock and all the ripples. I saw the immediate impact around me, right? Like where a doctor, a young doctor came up to me in the hospital with her in my arms is like, I was told this was impossible in medical school. And so I'm like, I believe in that moment that this man will be completely forever changed in the way that he leads clients. But I have no way of knowing with 
say the over a thousand kids in the high school that I coached at that all knew my story. Everybody knew what was going on. It wasn't just the volleyball players. I may never know that someone that was just listening from afar right now could be pregnant with a baby with similar, you know, evaluation of trisomy 18 or 21. And some doctor is out there telling them to abort and they're going to use their memory of what happened and say, you know what? I don't have to do that. I actually knew of someone that didn't do it. And I will never know. And I think for a long time, I wanted to know. I wanted to feel like there was this like giant impact in the world because I had to feel like there was purpose for my pain. Mm-hmm. And I do know that there was purpose in the pain. But I also know that I'll never know the whole story. I'll never know how far reaching it could be. And it's the same concept now of like, I never will know who all has read my book, or I will never know who listens to every podcast I've been on, or I'll never know in the audience of students I'm speaking in front of whether someone out there in maybe 10 years, it will impact them personally. I can be okay with that now. I don't have to feel like I have to hear everyone tell me the impact that it had on them because I know that God is still working through my story to others. Yeah, It's like you noted with the Mary piece, it's this idea of choosing to trust God, even if you don't know why this is happening, where this is going. Because what you said there, that phrase that you wanted to know that there is purpose in your pain. Mm. Like, I think everybody can resonate that when they're thinking of seasons where they chose to trust God or seasons where they chose to endure something or seasons when they pressed into a hard space. We want to know that it wasn't for nothing. Yeah. And the problem is sometimes the opposite of nothing for us is a very specific set of circumstances that has to work out like this. And if it doesn't, the baby has to live and grow. And what I've started to realize is that God actually does know more than us. (laughs) And God actually is seeing things from an internal mindset, not a here and now mindset. And I constantly come back to the passage where it's to him who's able to do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Because somebody could look at your story that maybe is questioning God and say, well, what are you saying? God caused your suffering. You know, I personally believe God isn't causing suffering the way that they're assuming it. So then they could say, okay, fine. Why didn't God save you from it? Why didn't God eliminate the suffering? Was it because he's not good? Because if he was good, he wouldn't let you suffer. Is he not powerful? Because if he was powerful, he could stop it. So the fact that he didn't stop it must mean that he's either not good or not powerful. Well, the reality is, is that God is after abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And so in our imaginations, we're seeing that the elimination of hardship is the best thing. And God looks at that and says, I understand why you believe that, but I'm actually doing something abundantly more. You have no idea what I'm actually trying to do, not just in your life, but in the life of the specialist, in the life of the OBGYN, in the life of the nurses, in the life of the teenagers, in the life of your three-year-old. In the life of, in the life of, in the life of, you have no idea what I'm trying to accomplish. And so I'm inviting you into this space and I want you to trust that I'm with you in this, Mm -hmm. that I'm not causing this, that I'm not refusing to take it away out of cruelty, that I'm allowing this and not stopping it because I'm actually doing something abundantly more. And you've hit on how there's elements of your life now, seven years later, that you would not have imagined. Seven years ago, you would not have said, huh, you know, in seven years, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go and podcast and I'm going to write a book, right? That was not on your docket. But now you're recognizing the opportunities that God's inviting you into to know him more deeply and to invite others into the same thing. 
And so I think that's what's so beautiful about stories like yours is it can have so many hard elements. It can have so many confusing elements and it can have so many pieces that we still can't explain or justify or still might be on the same page about depending on who's at the table. But we're far enough along now to know God did show up like with the mansion. God did do something supernatural like with your baby being born and living for six days. Mm -hmm. And so how can we now take these elements, these indications that God is present and active and step forward into that? Mm -hmm. So when you think of your life today, how is your faith different now seven years later? How is your seeking of God different now? I think I would say two things. Number one, the title of my book is called When Wishes Change. Mm. I started writing pre-pandemic, but then I was writing during the pandemic. And I just felt this calling like this isn't just a story about a woman who lost a child. There is a much bigger theme to all of this. And that is that, you know, we're all going to have dreams and wishes of our own that are selfish, that we want to come true. But that's not always God's plan. And if we don't allow our wishes to change, if we stay super stubborn on how we want our lives to be, we're really going to miss the boat on greater opportunities that exist. Mm. And so with that, about a year ago, I mean, I was starting to get sort of miserable in my job and it felt uncomfortable and there'd been a lot of leadership changes and it wasn't the place that it had been before. But like my wish and dream, because I'm a very like routine person that doesn't like a lot of change was to just be there forever. Why would I ever look for another job? Why would I leave? That sounds like a lot of work and it sounds scary. Mm -hmm. But I just knew that I was being called to something else. And actually during this exact week, out of nowhere, I got solicited by an athletic director at a college to apply for a coaching job as the head coach. Never considered that. He'd already said over 150 people had applied. But I was like, well, this is weird. Like I didn't even pursue this, but maybe I should try it out. Well, I made it to the finals. It was me and another candidate and the other candidate got chosen. However, all of a sudden, I knew that I could interview and I could do something else and I could see a life not where I was. Mm -hmm. And it almost made me more comfortable with the idea of like, hey, if I did leave, I could be okay. So then when the book was being published, I got an opportunity to meet with an agent about speaking and what the world of public speaking looks like. And it just gave me this space. And it was ironic because God is like very sarcastic with me, I think sometimes. And I think it was like the week I got the book title came to me, like when wishes change, he was like, and oh, by the way, I need you to listen now that I need your wishes to change. Mm. And so I left my job at the end of April with not necessarily anywhere else to go. I just knew that that's what I was supposed to do. And I didn't want to. It was really hard. But the situation had changed. It was not going well. Like mentally, I was in a really bad place with my mental health. But then doors started opening. And so I started speaking. And then over LinkedIn was solicited by the director of a volleyball club to come on board as the director of coaching, which is a huge calling for me. And I didn't pursue that. And so none of the things that have really happened in the last year, anything that I've gone hard after, but it's been God calling me to it instead. You know, you think about leaving a job where there's a paycheck that comes, you know, every two weeks and it's consistent and it's comfortable to now having to be on my own and pursuing my own speaking opportunities. And now I'm consulting and then coaching. I'm making my own schedule, but I'm not scared about it. I think that before I went through this whole situation with Annabelle, I would have never been able to just step out and be on my own. 
I wouldn't have had the courage to do it. I wouldn't have had the trust to do it. Mm -hmm. And every month I'm like, it's going to happen. I'm going to get paid somehow. I'm going to either do this or that or this or that. And there's a lot of work on my end. It's not like I can sit back and like watch Netflix and hope that jobs come to me. Like I have to work hard to pursue those things, but it puts me in a whole different realm of trust. And again, I can still say there will be days that I have bad days. I have doubting days. I still have questions sometimes, mm -hmm. but I'm in a much different place where I can be like, it's all right. God's got my back. And this is what I am supposed to be doing. And I'm confident in that. And if you feel that this is your purpose and calling, then keep doing it because God will provide. I mean, that's now where I am in my life. Yeah, that's good. And I love, I love that title. And early on, I realized, oh man, she hasn't said the title of her book yet. Should I ask her? I didn't feel like I should at that time. <laughs> and I'm glad that it didn't come till the end because I feel like hearing your story and then coming to this place of recognizing, you know, when wishes change, I think it's so powerful to know that, yeah, there are so many wishes you could have had along the way. But on this end of it, you can look back and recognize, again, that, that abundantly more that God can do. And so Absolutely. for anyone listening that is in a similar hard place. Maybe they are in a very, very, very similar place where they're choosing to stick with a pregnancy that others are telling them not to. What would you say to the person who is currently in the lowest, hardest moment of that journey? I mean, honestly, the two things I would say is constantly pray, constantly get into the word because God has a lot to say in the Bible about suffering and about dealing with circumstances like that of uncertainty in your life. Um, for me personally, it also was really helpful to find other believers that were in a similar boat as me. So I had to find someone that had gone through the, a pregnancy similar to mine, whether they lost a child, whether they live, whether it was a stillbirth. I mean, I didn't know my story yet, so I needed to kind of hear all different perspectives, but it had to be somebody that was a believer. And that was so helpful to me. I remember this woman and her daughter didn't have the same heart condition. So she did live a little bit longer, a few weeks, I believe. And we cried and we cried, but we could relate perfectly to being in the same boat and having the same doubts and fears. But she was on the other side. So she could still be there to be like, it's going to be okay. Like, I promise you can still be hopeful. You'll smile again. You will laugh. You will be able to get through this. Because in that moment, I was like, I'm worried I'll never laugh again. I'm worried I'll never smile again. I'm worried that I will be depressed my entire life from this circumstance. And she was able on the other side of it to be like, no, no, that's not how it's going to look. I promise it's going to be okay. I felt too when I left my job and I was figuring out entrepreneurship, I needed to talk to other people that did something similar. They left a consistent job to pursue whatever it is, real estate or you know, opening a new business. To just be like, tell me how I'm going to feel and how I should navigate this. It may not be exactly my story, but it was at least a similar enough story to get me some hope. And I'm a very person person. Like I love to connect, not just text, but, you know, online or on the phone or in person. Mm -hmm. And so that was really helpful to me. And nowadays, you know, through podcasts, Facebook groups, there's so many ways like through churches to connect with other grieving parents or others that have lost their job or whatever it is that you're going through. It may be hard. You may just want to like be on the couch under a blanket and cry, which is fine. Like if you need some time for that, but you got to get back up again. That's what God calls us to do. And I think that pursuing some relationships with other people that are Christians that have been through similar situations can impact you tremendously. Yeah, that's good. 
Well, as we close out, I have two final questions. The first is if anyone wanted to connect with you, find your book, what is the best way for them to do that? If you just search One Wishes Change, you'll find it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's also on my website, which is onewisheschange.com. And then on my website, one thing I didn't mention, which I think is kind of cool, is the Texas Catholic, they do newspaper articles and they have a website and they do a lot of videos. They actually followed our entire journey through our pregnancy with Annabelle hmm. and made it into a documentary. Those links are on my website and there's the longer documentary, but then there's also some short videos like a two minute video of the state championship game of me, you know, wobbling around, super pregnant, jumping up and down. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm one of those people that I love those based on a true story kind of videos or movies, because I think that it's neat that that was all documented as I was going through it. Wow. And it wasn't just created after all of it happened. It happened during and so they came with me to our volleyball retreat on August 1st and then continued filming and interviewing all through the pregnancy at the birth and after the birth and then after her death. So I think that's kind of neat that that's on my website as well. And then I'm on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok at When Wishes Change. Wow. I'm going to have to check that out. That's such a unique experience. Like you said, that it wasn't after the fact that I was in the midst. Oh, man, I, I, I want to watch it now. So It's pretty cool. And then my final question is, before we go, is there anything else in your heart that you want to share? Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that I feel is that, I mean, I know there's so many people hurting and going through suffering in many different ways. I mean, I've been just watching this war play out and the pandemic, you know, is kind of on the tail end, but a lot of people are still dealing with the grief from loss. And I just think that for anyone out there that feels hopeless, allow your wishes to change, to know that God has a greater purpose for the pain that you're in. And yeah, maybe you didn't wish for this situation or the current circumstances you're in. And it probably feels really painful and terrible right now to be in that circumstance, but God has your back and it's okay to be sad and to doubt and to feel some anxiety or depression, but know that there's others out there that want to help and be resources for you. And I'd be happy to be one of those. That verse I read at the start, Psalm 37.4, is a classic platitudinal verse. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. We are prone to bring this verse up in hard seasons as a way to encourage others. But our problem is, is we often focus too hard on that last bit. He will give you the desires of your heart. Because the moment we hear that, we think of the current desires on our heart. But I think we're missing a few things in this verse. First, if we just take a verse out of context, we're missing all the invitations that God's giving to us. Psalm 37 is a long one, so I won't read all of it. But I want to walk us through a bit of what's happening here. And this is a psalm of David, who was no stranger to suffering. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. 
He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Now here's what I want you to hear in this. This is filled with invitations. Do not fret. Trust in the Lord and do good. Take delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. Be still before the Lord. Do not fret. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. These are clear invitations. But oftentimes we jump just to that piece. Just give me the desires of my heart. We don't want the elements that precede that. We don't want the invitations. But without that, what we're really sitting in is just an inward focus of what we want. And God wants abundantly more for us. And this is the real kicker of this verse. And anytime I read this verse, I think of my friend Will Chapman, who many years ago was processing this. And he was sitting with the idea that it says that God will give us the desires of our heart, but so often we see moments where that doesn't seem to be true. And what he pointed out is something really beautiful, is that as we take delight in the Lord, as we trust Him, as we walk with Him, as we are still with Him, something happens to our desires. As we grow closer to Him, our desires do as well. Our desires become more like His desires until there comes a point that our heart desires what He desires. And it's in that space that we suddenly find this verse utterly true. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Because if the desires of your heart are no longer just for you, but are desires that matches God's heart, there's no stopping how God could fulfill that promise. Trisha invited us into something hard but powerful, that we can allow our wishes and desires to change. Did Trisha long for her daughter to live and to grow up? Absolutely. Was it heartbreaking when she died? Absolutely. But in the midst of the suffering, Trisha came to learn that it's okay if we allow our wishes to change. Because maybe, just maybe, what God has for us is abundantly more than we could ask for or imagine. And it's not that our wishes are bad or wrong, it's that they pale in comparison to what God is trying to do, not just for us, but for those around us and for people we will never meet. And that's now a part of Trisha's story. Over the last seven years, she's not only seen how God has transformed her, but how God has worked in her family and her friends, and now in strangers, some that she may never meet. God is doing abundantly more through Trisha's difficult season that she could never have orchestrated on her own that she could never have imagined. And yet she's invited into it. We're invited into it as well. If you're experiencing suffering right now, know that God sees you and he loves you and he wants to give you the desires of your heart. But he also knows that sometimes the desires of our heart are small compared to what he has for us. And so he's inviting us to walk with him, to know him more deeply. Trisha gives us an invitation to pray something bold and simple to God in the midst of our suffering. God, if you need to, I'm willing for you to change the desires of my heart. If you are willing, pray that prayer in the midst of the hardship, believing that God loves you and desires full life for you. Watch for how he'll work, and then ask yourself, 
where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the person who doesn't want to read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God? <laughs>